The reading today comes from Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 23. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with all the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we have received good income for, from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon after, the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius from Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what has happened this day. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. You can take a seat. It's a joy to be uh, with you, and uh, it's a joy to be able to close out this series today on preaching the gospel. I am grateful for uh, John Mark's legacy here in the city of preaching the gospel, and I'm also excited about the future and possibility of Tyler's leadership in bringing that same gospel to bear into the future. I have so much confidence in your church, in God's call on you as a community, and I'm really believing for, for beautiful, compelling days ahead for your church. But maybe not the kind that you're necessarily thinking about, which is what I want to talk about today. I don't know if you have felt this. I have. I've lived in New York for the last 16 years. I moved in 2005 
in my 20s to plant a church in Manhattan. And at the time, Christianity was, if you were to split it into zones, like a green zone is one of those places where there is an advantage to being a Christian, perhaps Alabama or something, where there's still some measured level of cultural capital. And then you have those orange zones, which is kind of like faith is perceived as weird, but it's not, you know, it's, it's like sort of quirky, but it's not really seen as dangerous. You have those red zones where faith is seen as a liability. Christianity is seen as something that has to be solved because it is a hindrance and a threat to the kind of good and just society that people at this time of history are trying to bring about. And I've watched New York go from a a yellow zone to a red zone. And if I was to summarize my internal uh, sort of journey, the, the emotional journey I've experienced around the increase of secularism and the decline of faith, I would say this. Number one, if I'm really honest, I've come to be a little bit embarrassed by the Christian ethical position on several issues in culture. Like I I somehow don't believe that how God has designed the world is actually the best way for the world to live. I'm, I'm a little embarrassed. And so I'm always putting a little disclaimers before I share what the Bible teaches. I feel that. Do you feel that? Secondly, I'm a little disillusioned by how I see other people who claim to follow Jesus respond. So I'm always like trying to distance myself and reposition myself. Whoever they are, them, I'm not them. Whatever you think about Jesus, I'm not following Jesus like they're following Jesus. I feel I have to do so much repositioning all all the time. And then lastly, if I'm really honest, I can often feel just like paralyzed by the complexity It feels like you have to have a master's degree in ethics and history and sociology and other religions in order to have a conversation with a barista for 30 seconds when you're picking up your coffee and heading out. It's just gotten hard. And so as a result, if we're not careful, what this does is it just basically pushes our faith inward. And then we buy into a culture that says... You're allowed to believe in the way of Jesus and practice the way of Jesus as long as it fits into the plausibility structures we create for you following Jesus. And what I sense, in spite of that deep internalization, is there's something within me and maybe there's something within you and your church that desires it to come out a little bit. That says, hey, sorry, late modern Western culture, I can't allow you to set the parameters of how I follow Jesus. I have to let Jesus set the parameters of what it means to follow him and be faithful in our time. And so I want to talk today about that. How do you push back on the plausibility structures that are seeking to reduce your faith to something that is personal and internal but has no bearing on the world at large? How do you preach the gospel to a city that wants you to shut up? How do you do that? And I think that the passage that we're going to look at today gives us several very, very timely insights on how to do that, particularly in a place like Portland. Now, to put this passage into context, the Apostle Paul is on one of his missionary journeys, and he is coming into the city of Ephesus. And he's been in that city for approximately three years or so. In fact, this is one of the places he ministered to the longest in the New Testament. At the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16, he gives an insight into what is actually happening. He says this, I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective service has opened to me. But there are many adversaries. And so here comes the tension, the door, a wide door. 
of effective ministry, but here comes the opposition trying to close that door in the city. When Paul first came to Ephesus, he does give an interesting church planning strategy. Number one, he starts with the most receptive audience. So he goes into the synagogue and starts with people who have a similar worldview and a similar understanding of God and history. But when they're not interested, instead of just like fighting with them, he takes the interested people and builds a school of discipleship, which happened in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And it was like one of those decent discipleship schools, not like a lame one. It says in a couple of years... The entire region, both Jews and Greeks, had heard the word of the Lord. That's like saying, you know, Paul comes into into the city and he's like, hey, I want to talk about how to follow Jesus. And he gets a ton of opposition. So he says, great, I'm going to do like a discipleship school from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. It's the only time we could get the building after the bar closes. And then they do a discipleship school and it's like the entire Pacific Northwest, both religiously haunted and secular people, heard the word of the Lord. You would be like... What's going on in that discipleship school? That's like, there's something happening here. That's what he does. And as a result of that, it releases extraordinary miracles. The power of God is released when the intensity of discipleship is focused. And then extraordinary miracles begin to happen. And you know, when the Bible calls a miracle an extraordinary miracle, it's a miracle miracle. And so Paul's so busy with his discipleship, he hands out aprons and hankies. And people are healed. Imagine taking one of that. Hey, Paul, we've got like needed demonic deliverance. He's like, look, take, take that. I'm busy here. And then you imagine carrying that tissue in, into the room. And there's a person manifesting in the corner. And you're like, in the name of Jesus, receive this prayer cloth. I mean, it was, and yet it worked. When people got word that the power of God was available, seven sons of Sceva say, hey, let's, let's take this. Let's do this. And so they go and try and cast out a demon. And their, their message is, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches. They have no authority. It's all borrowed. And then they are beaten up and pushed out naked, which is a bad day at church when you're doing a deliverance session and you end up getting beaten up and running out naked. But this results, this fear of God results in a public renouncement and acknowledgement of Jesus' power over the principalities. And the people come out and they start burning their witchcraft items and there's a huge movement of repentance. And then in Acts chapter 19, 20, right before this happens, we read this verse, the word of the Lord spread quickly and grew in power. It spread quickly and it grew in power. That was the fruit of everything that had happened. And it's been fine. Can you imagine being in that little discipleship school and just be thinking, oh, this is good. Like we're on it now. Maybe now we can get like a second house out in the country and just relax and sort of take it easy. And... It never works like that. It's been fine, but now they have poked the principality. What's happening on the edge that's caused a disruption is making its way to the center. And then we read this phrase, there was a great disturbance about the way. So you're here in Portland practicing the way of Jesus together. And? Is there a great disturbance because of how you're practicing the way? Because ultimately, when you take Jesus seriously and you follow him in his kingdom, it leads to confrontation. And we have to learn to get comfortable if that's possible. Not delight in it, not love it, but we have to get comfortable and understand the gospel always creates conflict. 
And this is what happens in this passage. Verse 22, there arose a great conflict about the way. The word here that's used, conflicts, Greek word, therobos, it's uproar. And it's the same word that's used of the crowd shouting before Jesus, about Jesus before Pilate. And this is Luke, the same author. He's wanting us to know that when you really understand what Jesus is about, when you really comprehend, he's not here just as the buddy Jesus to fix you in a doubt. He is here as the resurrected Lord of history to establish a kingdom. And the telos of that kingdom is all nations bowing before him and acknowledging that he alone is Lord. That starts to get a little resistance. In the Gospels, when the Jewish leaders understand, it resulted in an uproar. And in this city, when the pagan contexts understand, it causes an uproar. There's a kingdom clashing. And it's manifest through the person of Demetrius, who was one of the craftsmen. Now, the craftsmen are being brought together, this uproar, is basically an economic uproar. Demetrius has been impacted because his devotion to Artemis and participation in the city guilds, the traditions in the economy of the city, is being threatened. And in verse 25, it says this. This is his claim. If he is able to continue this, our trade will lose its good name. The prestige of the temple will be discredited and the goddess will be robbed of her divine majesty. And he's making his claim. He's like, look, I didn't mind what they were doing in the school of Tyrannus when they first got started, but now it's going too far. I don't care what they did behind closed doors with their, with their personal faith, but now it's manifesting itself in the city. And we've got to stop this. Artemis, who he is serving through his guild, was manifest. She had a temple that dominated the skyline. There should be some pics uh, sort of floating around up here. This is, this is her. She was a, a meteorite fell from heaven and it was covered in bumps and they sort of like thought they were breasts and so this is a part of the image of Artemis. They would worship her and at the time that this particular riot is happening, she was one of the most popular gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon. They rose and fell depending on what circumstances happened but this is one of her peak moments. Her temple dominated the skyline. It was constructed to replace a temple that had been destroyed in 356 BC. It was massive, four times the size of the Parthenon. It was built with 127 columns, each of which was 60 feet high. Tremendous circumference of these. Within the temple sat this image, and she became the focal point of the entire region. Throughout the Roman Empire at this time, there were 33 shrines to Artemis, and she was most, possibly the most popular god. So huge, multi-region reach. Her temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was so secure, it was a place that the Caesars stored their money. And her life, her aura, her rule, her reign dominated the culture. So it dominated the calendar. It dominated the economics. It dominated the social system. It dominated the hierarchy. She ruled the region. And what people would do is to go up and visit the temple, if you were not from there, it was a a pilgrimage. And so one of the things they would do is they would make these little shrines. And there's some examples here. These are little terracotta shrines. And you would get one of these shrines. So you would come into the city. You would find one of these craftsmen who makes these shrines. You would buy it and then you would go up into the temple and you would have one of the people serving Artemis dedicated or pray over it. Then you would have the spirit of the goddess You could take it back to your house and you could set up a shrine to Artemis so her power and her blessing and her help would be in your home. It was like a touch point, an icon for Artemis manifest in your home. And they made quite a lot of money doing this. 
There was one particular month of the year, a calendar month that was sort of dedicated to Artemis. And people would travel from all over the world. Just think about people going up to Jerusalem. And Demetrius seems to have picked this moment when the straight up people who loved Artemis rushed into the city. And so the population was swollen. Devotion was swollen. You had that psychology of the crowd where everybody's united about the beauty of Artemis. You've saved up your money. You've come in. And when the city is filled with people like a tinderbox, he realizes this is the moment to confront what's actually been happening. And he, he poses and puts himself forward as a civic leader wanting to do good for everybody in the city. And so he goes around and he basically asks the question, hey, I, I'm evaluating my finances here and it seems like there's been a decline in the sale of my shrines. And so he's like, well, I wonder what this is. Maybe, maybe like there's been weather in other parts of Rome and people are struggling to get here. No weather. Floods, plagues. No, no floods, plagues. Goes around to other guilds. Hey, how are your sales? Oh, I don't know what's going on, man. Sales are down. Really? What is it? And then somewhere in his investigation, someone's like, you heard about Paul? He's like, Paul who? And he's like, you heard about the school of Tyrannus? No, you heard about the way of Jesus? They're like, what's like, so is that the Jewish cult thing? Like, what's that got to do with anything? They're like, oh, there's a revival happening. Tell me about it. One of the things they're saying is that Artemis isn't the true God at all, and so people aren't buying the shrines anymore. They're not participating in the cultural liturgies in the same way. And he's like, are you kidding me? It is on. And so what he then begins to do as a spokesman for the damage that's being done by the way of Jesus, he rises up and defends Artemis and defends their way of life. And this is the charge he brings, verse 26. You see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. What a claim. He says that God's made by human hands are no gods at all. And there's a danger. So this Christianity is a danger to their way of life. Not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. The goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia, will be robbed of her divine majesty. So the charge is there's been massive conversions. Artemis is being challenged and it's touching the economy. And he's like, somebody's got to take action. Ladies and gentlemen, you're welcome. Your boy Demetrius is in the house. So he steps up with a willingness to shut down what is happening. And I want you to see this. The gospel of Jesus will always create a disturbance when the claims of Jesus are taken seriously. Second thing we see and this is why it's part of the threat, the gospel disrupts the exclusive inclusivity of their culture, the exclusive inclusivity of their culture. He says that gods made by human hands are not gods at all. And people are like, are you kidding? Of course that's a god, we just made it. We've declared it to be a god, we've imputed it with meaning. We've given our allegiance to it. We've tied our cultural narratives to it. Obviously then, it is a God. And Paul is making the claim that what we do in sincerity is insufficient for salvation. And it's fascinating to see that Paul is not there to hand out a few pamphlets. He's not there just for the common good. Paul is there being charged with cultural sedition. Now, the Roman context, uh, you probably know, Christians, were one of the first charges first brought against Christians is not that they were religious. They were originally called atheists because the Romans brought together the pantheon of gods 
And they, and, and basically the empire was held together by violence and by, by tolerance. A, a, a violent tolerance. And this is how it basically worked. The Romans would come in and they would basically say, hey, I don't know if you guys have heard about us. We're the Romans. We're doing quite well right now in terms of an empire. And we want your land. And so you can give it to us or we will rape, pillage, burn and destroy your village. So we'll give you peace as long as you pay heavy taxation. And then the people would say, well, what about our gods? They're like, you can keep your gods. The one thing you can't believe is that your God is the true God because we're holding together a bunch of different regions and visions and beliefs. And if any of you think that you're the only ones who are right, it's going to like create tremendous problems in the empire. So believe whatever you want. You just can't believe that your thing is the true thing. And so they were able to hold together this violent tolerance by enforcing with incredible power the ability for anybody to believe anything. The one thing you couldn't do was believe that one thing was the true thing. And so here come the Christians and they're like, sorry, appreciate the Pantheon, great cultural history, explains a lot. However, we believe that the true God has come into the middle of human history. The creator is manifest in the flesh and this humble servant has taken the sin and brokenness of the world upon him. He's conquered sin, Satan, death and hell. He's alive in the world and he's bringing his kingdom on earth to everybody else. And they were like, heresy. You cannot believe that because that is a threat. Believe what you want as long as you don't believe that your thing is the thing. And I think about our modern context. It's not that different. We are dealing with a violent tolerance at the same time. And often, if to be fair, the way people have followed Jesus has not helped in history. It's true. And people look at the secularization of our world. They look at the increase of diversity in the world. They look at the way that nations relate to one another. And they say, we don't want the racial, ethnic, gender or any of these other factors produce, to produce a kind of cultural superiority that excludes anybody. Therefore, we have to create a system that anybody can participate in the social contract as long as you don't believe you're the only ones who are right. Well, Leslie Newbegin says this, if the relativist claims that since all reasoning is embodied in a particular social context, no claim to no truth can be sustained, one has to ask... Which basis that claim is made upon? Because after all, it is a claim to know something about reality, namely that reality is unknowable. And so he basically challenges the framing assumptions of modern culture. Tim Keller puts it this way. Christians seem to great, this is the critique, Christians seem to greatly overplay the differences between their faith and all the other ones. Though millions of people in other religions say they have encountered God built marvelous civilizations and cultures and had their lives and character changed by their experience of faith. Christians insist theirs is the only one, the only way to go to heaven. Their religion is the only one that is right and true. This exclusivity is kind of breathtaking in its arrogance. And it also appears to be a threat to international peace. But then he responds by saying this, Inclusive, inclusivism is really covert exclusivism. It's common to hear people say, no one should insist their view of God is better than all the rest. Every religion is equally valid. But what you just said could only be true if the following conditions were met. Number one, there is no God at all. Or secondly, God is an impersonal force that doesn't care what your doctrinal beliefs are. 
And what he wants to show us, though this is an attempt at bringing peace and kindness, it's actually offensive to anybody who holds sincere claims about truth. It is offensive to say to a Buddhist that there is a personal God and you will be accountable for your sin. They would say, who are you to tell me? Buddhism says, no, that's not how it works. Or to go to somebody who genuinely practices in Islam and say, your religion is no truer than Christianity or Buddhism or atheism. They would say, there's no God but Allah. How dare you tell me how to practice my faith? Or to go to a, to a Janist or to a Jewish believer and say, that what you believe is a delusion and there's no truth behind it whatsoever. But in our kindness as secular people, we're going to allow you to hold your delusion as long as you don't take your delusion seriously. So he goes on. You, you speak, you are, you, so as you speak, you are assuming the faith and a particular view of God and you're pushing it as better than both the Christian, Jewish, Jhanist and Islamic view of reality. That is at best inconsistent and at worst hypocritical since you were doing the very thing that you were forbidding. To say all religions are equally valid is itself to make a very white Western Enlightenment view and you are imposing that on other people. Why should we privilege white European Enlightenment thinking over other traditions from other parts of the world? Modern inclusion is covert exclusion. So we live in a moment where... The conflict's not going away, and the gospel challenges this. But here's the conviction we have to have, that what we carry is not just another belief. It's a beautiful belief, and it's a good belief, and it sets people free. Dallas Willard said, reality is what you run into when you're wrong. Like when it's not working and it's all going south, you're like, what is this? And this is called, this, this is what you got wrong. And we have to have the conviction that the reason we don't want people to worship false gods, it's not just because it deceives them, but it leads to spiritual disaster. And it has to be a form of love. Look at what's happening in our culture today. Look at the rates of anxiety, depression, opioid addiction, the falling apart families being destroyed and severed, generational cycles happening. And it's not enough to say, hey, you do you. If you have something that is true and you believe it, we should respond to this. And this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due to us with the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all And therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul's like the fear of God plus the love of God equals a passion to persuade people about the truth. You get a lot of people who talk about the fear of God and it's it's like it's a a bullying message. And you get a lot of people who talk about the love of God and it becomes somewhat of a sentimental message. But it is the fear of God and the love of God that leads people to persuade And I'm reminded of the magician Penn and Teller. I'm sure you've seen them on the internet somewhere. But the magician Penn had this story. Someone comes up to him and tries, he's an atheist, and he he wrote a book called God Know. And someone comes up to him and tries to witness to him and give him a Bible. And everyone's like, oh, as an atheist, you must be so disgusted by these evangelizing evangelicals. And then here's his response. I've always said that I don't respect people 
who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think it's not really worth telling, this, telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe an everlasting life is possible and then not tell them about it? He says, I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you don't believe the truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. So we have to have a conviction that people are actually lost, that Jesus is actually good news, that the way of Jesus is the way and it's good news. And we cannot let a fear of being socially awkward Get in front of it. Paul says this in Acts 20. I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And do you feel that temptation? To shrink back? I was getting coffee this morning at heart. By the way, well, well done on that. And uh, I was getting coffee this morning and the bloke working there says, what are you doing today? And I was like, it was that one moment of like, I'm generically here in Portland having a generically great time. I love what you've done with the city. (laughs) Or it was a shrinking back moment. Or it was a stepping up moment. I'm going to church. I made a mess of my life and Jesus has really been kind to me. So I'm going to church. I need it. To shrink back, that's the tension. And it's hard because certainty is an enemy in our culture. Conviction is an enemy. Certainty causes a response. causes people to take sides. It puts people on the outside and on the inside. And we just are very, very fragile in our sense of self. We just cannot have anybody challenge us if we believe the truth. We have to acknowledge this, that the gospel will confront the way our structure is currently Putting forth. The third thing is that the gospel disrupts the privatization of our faith. So it, it's going to mess things up and it's going to get out from inside of us into the world. This fellow Paul, it says, has convinced and led astray large numbers of people. There's a danger that our trade will lose its good name. It's touching the culture. The temple of our goddess Artemis will be discredited. They're pushing back in cultural narratives. And the goddess who was worshipped will be robbed of her divine majesty. And so the claim is that the impact in, in Ephesus is the cultural narrative is being subverted, the economy is being impacted, and the social imagination is being reduced. I often wonder, how do you, how do you tell if a church is being a good church? It's like really confusing for pastors in COVID. It was like, well, let's measure the online views. And, uh, and then, like, we, got, we have these people who do research. I have nothing to do with it, but I get these reports of, like, how the online stuff works. And um, it's like the typical person watches an online service for 11 minutes or something. And it's just, like, the most depressing statistic ever. Wow, 3,000 people watched half a song in the announcements, not even the whole announcements. <laughs> how do you measure its impact? Popularity of a pastor? Quality of its facilities? Amount of money in the bank, how many young people go there who look moderately cool compared to the other young people of the city? How do you measure the impact of a church? Well, the impact in Ephesus, the impact of Ephesus was it touched the cultural narrative, the economy, 
and the social contract, how people participate in the life of the region. And whenever Christians showed up, they created problems. There was a great disturbance. In the second century AD, the governor of Bithynia complained that through local Christian influence, temples and sacrifices were being neglected. All gods demand allegiance and service. And the Christians were just like no longer giving allegiance and they were neglecting to participate in the gods of their day. And the gospel disrupts the privatization of faith because it means that if Jesus is Lord, he's not just Lord of my heart, my feelings, and my eternal salvation. He's the Lord of both heaven, which we love, but he's also the Lord of earth. And all authority has been given to him and is in the process of making disciples who establish a kingdom. There's a necessity to public faith. I'll give you two examples. Number one, Rosa Parks. Imagine saying to Rosa Parks in the middle of the civil rights movement, hey, I've got good news for you. Jesus gives you justice in your heart. Invite the justice of Jesus into your heart. Don't worry about the systems. Don't worry about the structures. Don't worry about the laws. Don't worry about how people imagine life is. Don't worry about the story about what a human being is in the world. Just get the, like, just ask the justice of Jesus into your heart. And when you're dead, you get justice in the sky later. So just, just go to the back of the bus, thanks. Can you imagine that? You know, at some point she's like, no, if Jesus is really Lord, if all people are made in the image of God, if the kingdom of Jesus is really about the spirit of the Lord coming to bring hope and deliverance and freedom, I'm sorry, justice in the heart is not enough. It has to be manifest. And we experience this. You experience this in Paul, and I saw it on the news. Imagine saying to the family of George Floyd, hey, I'm really sorry about that, but I've got good news for you. You can have peace in your heart about things. And at some point, they're like, peace in the heart is not good enough. We need this to be manifest in the world. And it seems to me that Christians are the only ones who have a belief about Jesus being Lord, who are content to make him Lord of our subjective internal experience. We have to have a commitment that we will not let our faith be privatized. It will impact the arts and economics and education. It will impact how children are raised, what marriages are viewed like, what you do with your sexuality and how you use your leisure time. Jesus is Lord or he's nothing. David Osberger says this, Christian spirituality is not as popularly believed a matter of individual salvation leading to a life of individual self-realization and pointing toward individual growth and perfection. It's not the private encounter of the soul with its own personal deity. It's a public encounter with a God who meets us in community. Jesus in Lord as the Lord means something in Portland. It means something. And it has implications for every area of this city. And it seems to me that almost every, the LGBTQ community understand this. That what they believe is not just an internal subjective thing, but a vision of that sexuality should be manifest in the world. People working for equality with, with, with issues like racism and income, they believe it's, got a, it's not enough to be in the heart. And Christians are the only ones who seem to think that we should follow the light American script and have a Lord of our hearts. We've got to realize it's going to manifest itself publicly in society. And now the problem is the crowd doesn't want this in the city of Ephesus. They're like, go back to the school of Tyrannus, shut the doors. When they heard this, this is the crowd, they were furious. They began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus. 
Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but they wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. Do you experience that? But ever been in a mob crowd? And you're just like, I don't even know why I'm here. There's nothing on tonight. There's just total confusion. And I want you to imagine what it would have been like as a picture of the theater. Imagine just like that thing being filled with people chanting for hours. Like just total resistance to your message. It caused a great disturbance. There was a great disturbance because of the way. But then we learn something in the midst of disturbance. Look at what I said. This is the next thing. The gospel exposes the illusion of a progressive response. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. So the Jewish, the Jewish believed in the city like, we are not with them. We are not with them. We've been letting Artemis do her thing. We're doing our thing. We're over here. We've been here for a while. We don't know who these Christians are with their meta claims, offensive claims about Jesus being Lord. We are not with Jesus. And so they think that they can have a moderate response to the mob differentiate themselves from the extremists and find acceptance in the city. And it says, as soon as they realized he was a Jew, they started shouting him down. Because the Jews have this thing called the Shema. And they have the Ten Commandments. And it says that you shouldn't have any other gods before the one true God and you shouldn't make an image. And I think the people knew that. And I think they were kind of like, we will not tolerate your attempts to differentiate. We do not want you to accept us. We want you to celebrate us and we will have nothing in the middle. And this is the illusion of moderation. And so the Jewish believers thought they could separate themselves, but they too had exclusive claims. And I think there is a tremendous pressure in our world today to always sort of like reposition and, and get back and, and modify and and do image management for Jesus and do PR for Jesus in every single conversation. And at some point, you're just going to have to have a conversation. And it sort of goes like this. Look, he rose from the dead and he's the Lord of history and he has claims on your life. He created you. You did not get here on your own. Good news, you're not an accident, but he wants your life. And there's no way to soften the Lordship of Jesus. You can do it beautifully. You can do it skillfully, but you cannot soften the essential claim. Because if you moderate it, which is like, well, Jesus doesn't care who you have sex with as long as you're sincere. Jesus doesn't care what you do with your money as long as you give a little bit to the poor. Jesus, you know what you end up with? America. <laughs> What's the point? What's the point? Do what you want. Believe what you want. Sleep with who you want. Give your money where you want. Watch what you want. Work where you want. Just be sincere. And at some point, people are like, I don't need Jesus to do that. I can just do that. In the Roman Empire, Keller says this. This was the claim. You Christians are too exclusive. You threaten the social order because you won't honor all deities. In the modern West, you Christians are too exclusive. You threaten the social order because you won't honor all identities. It's very, very hard to get to the place where you believe that Jesus is the reference point through which everything else must pass. But I want to be very clear here. 
We have to do this with a humble conviction. This has to be done in humility. There's a, there's a way you can do this with arrogance. At which point I think Jesus begins to separate himself from you and says, they're not with me. It's got to be in humility. And we just need to sort of like just ride the wave of cultural rejection. I remember like in the sovereignty of God, I had this amazing season of spending a lot of time with Tim Keller in the early days of New York. And I remember one of the last things he said to me, he's like, I'm, he's like, I'm sad for you and I'm jealous of you. I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, you know, I'm in my 60s now. I'm not going to be really actively pastoring for the next 30 years. But he's like, I think the world is just going to like live its dream and reject faith more and more. And it's just going to do whatever it wants. And at first, it's going to feel amazing. And then it's going to lead to total and utter chaos and disorder. And people will cry out for a change. And if you can ride the storm and be faithful and humble and set up shop in the middle of the city and be faithful and have integrity... All you'll have to open your doors in a, in a, in a, is all you have to do is open your doors, and they're going to come streaming in for hope and forgiveness. Wow. And he's like, "So I'm sad because I know it's going to cost you to ride that wave, but I'm excited because when you open those doors, it could be a revival." G.K. Chesterton says this: "Those who marry the spirit of the age will find themselves widows in the next." And go back through church history and watch people who compromised and watch what became of it. And then watch those who were faithful to Jesus and preached the gospel. They ended up being on the right side of history. And then lastly, the gospel disrupts, but it does it without disrespect. And this to me is maybe the most extraordinary claim of this whole passage because what happens here is they have a respectful riot. The Christians create a respectful riot. This is what the city clerk says. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know the city of Ephesus is the guardian of this temple of the great Artemis and her image, which fell from heaven. It's like it's right there. Calm down. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and they're proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we should not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. So he makes four claims. Number one, the whole world knows about Artemis. Like honestly, like what chance is there of the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world, ever being destroyed. Calm down. And everybody knows that Artemis is the one true God of the region. It's like undeniable. Number three, these men are innocent. They haven't blasphemed and they haven't robbed temples. And if this gets to Rome, we're going to lose our favor. And so maybe it's not the Christians who are the problem. It's the way you're responding to what the Christians believe that's actually the problem. So calm down. Now, it's so fascinating to me. So fascinating to me. Because they were so convinced of the rule and reign of Artemis. It's, un it's, un it's obvious. The Christians have a reputation in the city. Here's what it is. It's subversive. They're subversive. They're persuasive. They're controversial. But they're also respectful. 
They haven't robbed and they haven't blasphemed. I like how one commentator puts this. He says, the Ephesian believers did not lobby the city authorities, picket the silversmith shops, or organize demonstrations against Artemis worship. They did not try to be popular. They preached and lived out the message and let the power of their changed lives confront and push out the old ways. They preached and lived out the message and let the power of their changed lives confront and push out the old ways. Now, I'm closing with just a couple of points of application. What are the implications for followers of Jesus in Portland at Bridgetown Church? This is a story from the first century about what happens when the gospel comes to a city who's not interested in it. What does it mean for us? Number one, we've got to get comfortable with controversy. Just it's unavoidable, folks. It's unavoidable. What you believe is controversial. And somehow you've got to get that into your identity. You've got to stop doing image management. You've just got to realize, like, when they actually figure out what it is after you've done all the positioning and repositioning, it's controversial what it is that you believe. If you're not getting a reaction from your life, you're not preaching the gospel, you're just being nice. If you're getting a reaction, it doesn't mean you're preaching the gospel. You could just be acting like a jerk. (laughs) But if you are preaching the gospel, there will always be a reaction. Because the gospel, when believed and lived, is the power of God and a foretaste of the new world that is on the way. And it, it is not a passive anemic kingdom. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but power. Amen. You've got to believe in the power of the gospel. I, I imagine being a Christian in the riot at Ephesus and just thinking, you know, hearing the city clerk give that speech. And you're like, temple is pretty big. Temple's pretty big. Artemis does seem to have quite a lot of cultural influence around here. Like maybe as a tiny little minority that makes crazy claims that no one accepts, maybe I've got this wrong. But have you ever been to Turkey today? You ever been to the Temple of Artemis, seen the ruins? The number one industry today in Turkey, in, this part, in that part of the world, is Christian tourists coming to visit the ruins of the Temple of Artemis. 2,000 years later, like, okay, now the next two is going to show you where Artemis' temple was. And it's followers of Jesus believing the same things they believed in that time that over the course of time took it down. So you just got to believe this. Just ride the wave of controversy with humility and with hope. We, we love the early church brought the Roman Empire to its knees. It took 300 years. Most people in their lifetime are just kind of like, I don't know how this is going to work out, but they were faithful and they look back and they're like, I'm playing the long game here. Do not capitulate to the moment for acceptance. Play the long game. Get comfortable with controversy. Number two, I want to call you to courageous engagement. I had a conversation once with some, a pastor that had joined our team and he had sort of an abrasive personality And I have sort of an easygoing personality until I encounter abrasive personalities. (laughs) Then I get drawn in. And so he says, I need to meet with you. I'm like, great, man. He goes, like, I want to confront you on something. I'm like, this is going to be a great meeting. (laughs) 
Wyoming grad meeting. So he says, now, I said that because I wanted you to know what the meeting was about. It's like, great, he said. He said, the reason I put it so strongly is this. He said, to be honest with you, John, I'm intimidated by you. I'm intimidated by you. And, in, and I actually really want you to like me. And I'm worried that if I tell you the truth, that you're going to power up and I'm going to lose my access to you and my intimacy with you. But I love you more than my fear and self-preservation. And so out of love for you, I want to share this with you. And he said this to me, he said, most people don't confront because they don't love enough to. They're just doing self-preservation. I was like, dang. So if we really believe this is true, that Jesus is alive, that the gospel saves people from sin, Satan, death, and hell, that it brings freedom and peace and life and hope and deliverance, that's gonna, we're going to have some vision for that. You know, people talk about what they love. Have you noticed that? You find someone who gets a, like a new little hobby. Someone gets into cycling and they've gone from like the short jeans to like skin tight leotard thingies <laughs> and short hats. And they want to tell you about where, what'd you do this weekend? Dude, I got the gear and I went riding. Have you ever thought about riding? Do you know the health benefits on your knees has none of the drama and impact of running? I mean, they, they, what you talk about what you love. And if we love Jesus, we won't be able to not talk about him. And we, we want to have that spirit that we believe in the gospel and we love Jesus and we love people, so we bring it to bear. I love this phrase here. There's a riot. The whole city's in an uproar. They're chanting, long live Artemis the Ephesians. And they have to physically restrain the apostle Paul from going in there. How great. Do you believe the gospel is when you're like, oh, bless God, this is the conclusion of my three years of work. I got the whole city in one shot. Let me in there. <laughs> they have to physically restrain him and talk him out. And I believe that's the spirit that Jesus wants to release, that boldness and conviction about the truth. Where in any part of the city where there is a riot or brokenness, followers of Jesus rise up and they say, let me in there. Where are the bad neighborhoods? Let me in there. Where are the conversations about justice? Let me in there. Where is truth being misaligned? Let me in there. Rather than shrinking back, we should have the spirit of the Apostle Paul who doesn't see crisis, he sees opportunity. He believed in the gospel. He believed in the Holy Spirit. He was not intimidated by the hysteria of the crowd. They had to physically restrain him. When you're in love and people are in danger, you will do anything. And if the love of Jesus is in you and the fear of God is in you, you will be persuaded to reach people with the gospel. And then last point here is we've got to do this with a convicted civility. Haven't blasphemed the goddess or taken the money. And that's why in Colossians chapter 4 it says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. There's a way of doing conflict in our culture that Christians have gotten sucked into. Did you know like when you get angry, there's like chemical reactions, like epinephrine is released in your sort of like in your bowels. 
Have you ever, ever like gotten in a fight, in a conflict, and you're like, you just like you feel it physically inside of you, and it's that's designed like that to protect you and to get you to act. But the problem is, is that so many Christians get offended by the world and they get angry at the world. We're not at war with the world. We're at war for the world. And so our response will be different. We're looking at the powers behind. That's where our fight is. We're not called to fight with people. It's with flesh and blood, not people who disagree with us. And so we've lost so much credibility because we've demonized people, turned them into the enemy. We've let epinephrine and anger and vitriol dominate our discussion. But Paul is leading a respectful riot. He sort of leaned back in his chair while he's saying, let me in there. Let me have a crack. That's a humility. Peter puts it like this. Do this with gentleness and respect. And you think about the person of Jesus. In the middle of the crisis, what does he do? And they're going to the cross and the mobs are screaming. And he's calm. And he's silenced his soul in prayer. And he simply says, Father, forgive them. Take care of my mother. Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. Total poise in the midst of chaos. Loving the enemy while he crucifies them. So this is, I'm not talking about adrenaline. I'm not talking about categorizing people as enemies and shouting them down and and doing poor things on social media. I love how N.T. Wright puts it. He says this, The call of the gospel for the church is to implement the victory of God in the world through suffering love. So the call, you've got to implement the victory of Jesus, but you do it through suffering love. You don't take people's lives for your vision. You give your life to see the vision happen. Humble, clear, loving, potent declaration that Jesus is Lord in Portland, and that you will follow him into the fray. And so I actually want to pray a very disturbing prayer for you. I want to pray that there would be a great disturbance because of the way you follow Jesus in this city. I want to pray that your discipleship will disturb idolatry. I want to pray that your discipleship would disturb the enemy. I want to pray that your discipleship would disturb injustice. I want to pray that your discipleship would disturb oppression and addiction and that wherever you go, by the grace of Jesus, you will have the privilege of seeing a respectful riot. Amen.